Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And just a quick background, if you remember, um, Paul is under house arrest in Rome and is kind of uh, briefly discussed the Gentiles and the Jews being united in one in Christ. And so he starts with chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is now, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thanks be to God. What do you think when you hear the word mystery? Or what's the first kind of picture you get in your head when you hear the word mystery? When I was a kid, we were very limited in the amount and type of television that we were allowed to watch. But one of the few shows that we watched weekly and gathered as a family was this show called Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, and it was this, this old guy in a trench coat with this very dark voice and this eerie background music. And I could tell you to this day a number of those stories exactly as they happened and remained unsolved because that was just like fodder for this fertile little mind to lay awake in bed every night and just be like, what if that person escaped from Arkansas and went to upstate South Carolina and that's the noise I hear scratching on my window, okay? So that was unsolved mysteries. Maybe some of you think of a mystery as a certain series of mystery stories that you read or that you watch on a TV series, Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, Columbo. I mean, there's all kinds of these series of books that you can read and programs that just follow one mystery after another after another. I always thought of that show of the middle-aged, the older woman that was like up in like Nantucket or something and people were dying every Sunday night around her, Murder, She Wrote. I would move out of her orbit because like, that's a lot of death. But uh, mysteries. I like mysteries like UFOs, Area 51, Bigfoot, which does exist, but my wife thinks does not. So we have this, we have this discussion with our kids when we're driving through different parts of the mountains, like, could Bigfoot live here? And I say, yes. And she says, no, because it's a mystery. It's not solved yet. You have mysteries like Loch Ness Monster. And I think when we're thinking of mystery, we're usually thinking of something that's like 
dark and foreboding. It's secretive. Maybe it's spooky or scary. Um, Sometimes we're using this term to refer to something that only some really, really elite educated people can figure out. Like this is just for the experts. And I want us to see this morning that the Bible uses this term mystery very differently than how it just kind of registers with us. And we want to talk about that this morning. So Paul's talking about the mystery of Christ. I mean, that's the title of the message is the mystery of Christ. And it's there in the middle of your text. And we're going to see this morning that Paul shares three things about this mystery. He shares its character, its content, and its calling. So when I say the the character of the mystery is basically like, what are some key attributes of this mystery that he begins to share? And again, it's not something dark and secretive. It's not something only for the initiated. The first thing we see about the character of God's mystery is it's actually known by God's revelation. And this is what he says in verses 3 through 5. First, he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And then he's going to turn around and say, I hope you can perceive that as I share this with you, now you all know what the sons of men, which is a way of saying humanity in previous generations, didn't understand, but now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And he's going to go on in verses 8 through 10 to say, it is now my life's mission to share with you. And he uses an interesting word that's like to illuminate. And I picture something that all throughout the Old Testament, it's like God's been building something in the dark. And he's been building and building and building. But the the dawn is coming. And this is even a biblical metaphor of like the coming of Jesus. Like the dawn is coming. You know how in those early morning hours, like from pitch darkness, you can start to kind of make out the form or the outline of something. And you don't know what it is yet, but even if you're in a new place, you can like, you you can kind of start to get a lay of the land. Like there are certain shapes and masses and sizes. And that's kind of what he's saying. And now I want to shine all this light on it and show you God's revelation So I'll just give you this definition. You don't need to write this down. But what is a biblical mystery? It's simply a truth that was previously unknown but has been brought to light. But here's God saying, let me show you. Let me tell you in my word. But then he also does it ultimately through not his written word but through his living word, Jesus. And I want you to notice verse 11 where he says, this is my eternal purpose. The eternal purpose of God is now being realized through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So it's coming to fruition through the person and the work of Jesus. So I think you want to be an insider to the mystery of Scripture, then trust God, yes, but read the Bible and draw near to Jesus. Because the Spirit, as we read in this text, the Spirit of God is willing and eager to reveal the mystery to anyone who's trusting Him and saying, God, through your word, show me Jesus. Now, I want to kind of contrast this going back to, we'll go back and forth a couple times between kind of what we think of as human mysteries and the mystery of Christ. Because very often with human mysteries, the holder of the mystery, I'll call this person or this group of people, Sometimes the holder of that mystery revels in the fact that no one else can figure it out. You know, there there are a lot of these mystery stories of like buried treasure, hidden treasure. And uh, there, there was one recently, people thought it was in Wyoming or maybe Western Colorado. And people were literally dying to go try to find this treasure. And 
the guy who's now deceased, reveled in the fact that he wrote these clues to how to find the mystery, but other people couldn't discover it. And you notice that the mystery of Christ is the exact opposite. He's not like, sweet, no one can crack the code, no one can figure it out. He's actually saying, I'm reveling in the fact that I'm not withholding it, I'm reveling in the fact that I'm sharing it with you and sharing it with anyone who dives into the word of God. And that brings us to a second characteristic of this mystery is not only is it known by God's revelation, but it's experienced by God's grace. So again, going back to human mysteries, a lot of human mysteries are what I would think of as a a merit-based mystery. It's like only the most brilliant minds can figure it out. You bring in that detective, that sleuth, that person who always gets it right by the end of the 60-minute show, and they unpack it for you, and everyone else is like, oh, you're so, you're so brilliant. Or there are other types of secrets that it takes a bunch of money or a bunch of education or a bunch of the right kind of interpersonal connections for you to figure something out. And you see here, again, that the mystery of Christ is the exact opposite. The mystery of Christ is revealed by grace, sheer grace. That's why Paul says here in verse 2, like my entire life's mission is the stewardship of God's grace, which is an interesting way of putting it. He's like, it's God's grace. I'm just a manager or a steward of grace, sharing it with other people, giving it to other people. Then again in verse 7, he says, I was made a minister of this good news according to the gift of God's grace. And this is really interesting because he actually says, I am I am the very least of all the saints. And if you know Paul's backstory, you know that for a long time, he actually thought the mysteries of God were for the educated, the initiated, the elite. The, the law keepers got the mystery. And Christ, at some point in his life and ministry as a Jewish rabbi, interrupts his thinking and is like, no, it's not about your education. It's not about your expertise. It's not about your performance of the law. It's by sheer grace that you can actually come to know the true mystery. And when he's like, whoa, God has rocked my world. Now I want God to do this for everyone else. So everyone else knows this mystery by grace. You know, I want to correct a a misunderstanding that a lot of people have about Christianity And I think Christians ourselves sometimes do the world a disservice where we make it look as if Christianity is a merit-based system. Like God comes to those who are really, really good or really, really smart or something like that. A lot of human-made religions, they're intentionally merit-based and they have all these hierarchies. So it's kind of like the longer you stay in and the more committed that you prove yourself to be, and the more of the stuff that you memorize and can regurgitate, it's like you kind of get initiated into higher and higher levels, which there are fewer and fewer people that belong to these new levels. And there are actually some, some pretty common religions that you, you know of, that it's like when you get to the very top elite echelon of that religion, it's like, whoa, this is what this whole thing is really about? Like, how many people know this? And the answer is very few. Christianity is not that way. There's not this series of initiations in the Christian faith where you rise to a higher and higher plane and get more and more information. I love the way John Stott puts this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, in Christianity, there are no esoteric mysteries reserved for a spiritual elite. 
On the contrary, the Christian mysteries are truths which, although beyond human discovery, have been revealed by God and so now belong openly to the whole church. So the character of the mystery is it's revealed by God. We experience it through grace. Now let's look at the content. And I think this is is another way to distinguish the content of God's mystery from the content of so many human mysteries, even religious mysteries. Uh, how many of you have done like an escape room? You, know, you go into these rooms, there's usually a backstory, and you start looking around your environment and gathering clues and kind of synthesizing and putting it together in your mind and start solving a series of puzzles or mysteries that get you out of this room, right? And if you get stumped at some point in the escape room, you're not just stuck. I mean, you can always panic and just be like, hey, moderator, wherever you are, like, let me out. And they will. Or you can say, I'm not ready to tap out, but I, I need a clue. And through this, through this voice, you know, that's speaking to you over this loudspeaker, they'll say, okay, here's, here's a hint or here's a clue. I want you to notice here, Paul isn't giving clues. He's not writing to the Ephesian church and being like, oh, you guys are just on the cusp of figuring this out. So let me, let me give this little teaser and then you'll be right there. He just comes right out and says, okay, here's the mystery. Verse 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And if you're like, okay, cool, I don't get it. Well, let's talk about it for a minute. So going all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible, like the Old Testament, Genesis, we find God is very clear. It was his intention to bless both Jewish and Gentile people. Okay, who's the father of the Jewish people? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Do you know in Genesis chapter 12, when God is first calling Abram from a foreign land, who was probably a pagan practitioner at the time, God calls him, and right there at the beginning of his call, God says this, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. But get this, and in you. And later he would say, and in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Hebrew people had this calling of, yes, you're my covenant people by grace, but I want to work through you instrumentally so that other people who are not Jews can also experience all the fullness of the blessing of God. And you fast forward to the days of Jesus and the apostles and just say, so how was that going? How how were the Jews doing in the days of Jesus and the apostles at saying the blessing is for us, but it's also for you? We want you to experience it. Come and experience it. It was going terribly. And we talked last week about how even the geography of the temple prohibited Gentile believers from drawing near to know and experience God the way that the Jews could. So now Paul writes this letter knowing it's not going well, this mission to be blessed, to be a blessing And he writes this letter and says, okay, let me show you this mystery that God showed me. Here's how God is going to bless all the peoples of the world, and here's how much he's going to bless them. And look again at verse 6. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. In other words, Gentile believers, here's the mystery, Gentile believers have been made co-equal to and one with Jewish believers. So, so first of all, like you got these two separate tribes, ethnicities, uh, religions of people. And Paul says, this is what Jesus is showing me, is that the Gentiles are made co-equals and one with Jewish believers. And what you don't see in the English language, and I wish it was somehow here, is that in that verse 6, Paul has taken three Greek words and he's put the sin prefix on it, like synthesis or synonym or syncretism. And, you know, sin means together or with. And now he's going to say all of these blessings that were for the Jews initially are now sin, like S-Y-N. They're now sin promises. They're now sin blessings because you Gentiles get them co-equally with the Jews. And just, just look for a moment at each one of those. First of all, he says we are co-heirs of the same inheritance. And this would be like, well, of course, the Jews get the inheritance of God, and they, are, they always presumed that they would get the inheritance of God. They are the covenant people. So when the messianic kingdom comes, who gets the inheritance? Who gets the blessing? The Jews do. And incredibly, what Paul is saying here is God has revealed to me that if a Gentile puts their faith in the same Jesus, they don't have to stand off to the side and wait their turn while all the Jews go through the line and they get their inheritance, they get first dibs, and then the Gentiles can step forward and kind of get the leftovers. He says, you are co-heirs of the same inheritance. Secondly, he says, we are co-members of the same body. And Paul loves this analogy of the human body saying Christ is the head and the believers, the church, are the members of Christ's body. He's going to use this again in chapter 4 after he already used it in chapter 1 and now here in chapter 3. And what he's saying is there isn't a Jewish body and a Gentile body. There is Christ's body. And regardless of where you came from and what your backstory is and what your ethnicity and what your former privilege, if you believe Jesus and follow Jesus, you get the same wisdom from the head. You get the same power, the same direction, the same enlivening force in you through Jesus. And then thirdly, notice he says we are co-sharers in the promise of God, what this word literally means. And I want you to notice that here promise is singular. So last week we talked about how Gentiles are invited into the experience of all the promises of God, which they were formerly distant from. And we we went back to the Old Testament. We showed you how these promises of God were made to patriarchs who were Jewish patriarchs. And it's like, I'll give this to your family and to your offspring after you. So the Gentiles were outsiders to the promises. But here he's like, now let's let's just hone in on one promise singular, the promise of salvation through Jesus. And he says, Gentiles exactly share in the same promise of salvation. How? That's kind of the second piece of this. So, so how do we share it in the same promises? Well, back to verse 6 again. He's saying Gentiles get all these blessings. Gentiles are co-equals and Gentiles are one in Christ through the gospel. So salvation comes in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I want you to notice how stunningly Christ-centered 
the mystery of Scripture is. It's all about the person and work of Jesus. Could a Gentile be saved before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Could a Gentile be saved? It's not a trick question. The answer is yes, but how? In, under the old covenant, do you know a Gentile had to come and attach themselves to the Jewish people? So if you're a male, you have to take the rite of circumcision to kind of be initiated into the Hebrew faith. You had to keep the Torah, not just the moral part that we talked about last week, but all the civil and ceremonial stuff. You had to keep all of that. And functionally, if you wanted to be saved as a Gentile in the Old Testament period, you had to become a Jew, essentially and in practice. So the new thing here, the mystery is not that a Gentile could be saved. The new thing here is that Gentiles are saved in Christ Jesus through the gospel plus nothing. So Paul's writing to these believers, and there are Jews in the church, and there are Gentiles in the church, and maybe there's, if not bickering, there's at least misunderstanding of like, so how much of the old covenant do we need to draw in, drag into the church, and continue to practice? And do Gentiles need to do that stuff? And do, should Jews like not be able to do any of this stuff over here? And he's like, look, what, what it all comes down to is Jews and Gentiles are equal in every way, united to Christ in exactly the same way by sheer grace, by the gospel, and God is forming something altogether new, which is a diverse, multi-ethnic community known as the church. Perhaps we've grown up too close to what I just said. So we're like, well, yeah, I mean, sure. So let's go back. How shattering would this have been to a man like Paul when he first hears what the mystery is and how God is going to accomplish this mystery. And he would have been thinking things like this. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're not saved by your privilege. You're not saved by your ethnic identity. You're not saved by your association with certain people. You're not saved by your obedience to the law of God, the Torah, the Mosaic law. You're not saved by your devotion to certain religious practices that God gave us. You're saved simply by believing the gospel. And by the way, that mystery is really good news for the have-nots. Because if you're like, I'm not an ethnic Jew, I've failed to keep God's law, I don't do those religious practices, I'm not a part of that community, I don't have any associations in that community, I'm the wrong ethnicity, I'm born on the wrong side of the tracks, how do I ever get over there? And the gospel is like, well, you don't need to get over there. There's no over there to get to. Jesus Christ is saving you into a new humanity, not putting you over there. So this is great news for the Gentiles. But in, in one sense, it's terrible news, not for the Jews, but for the entitled, privileged Jews. Okay, so you, you notice here in these bookends, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. But Paul, when he announced this mystery, it cost him everything. It cost him his freedom. It cost him his reputation. It cost him financial prosperity. It cost him his reputation, his comfort, his friendships, his associations. It cost him everything 
now, as Jason mentioned when he read the scripture, he's living under house arrest. He's imprisoned for the sake of sharing this good news with Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews are completely, not just frustrated, they're angry about this mystery. And they're like, Paul, you're, you're saying we no longer have our unique and special place in God's economy? You're saying that our customs and laws that we have kept for 1,500 years don't make us special in God's eyes? You're saying all this effort, all this work, all this commitment, all this sacrifice, all this risk, none of it means every, anything, and Jesus means everything? And he's like, yes. And they're like, so now we got to do life with these people who until five seconds ago were idolatrous, immoral people living outside of our customs and laws just simply because they believe in Jesus. Yes. And they're like, shut up. We will not lose our privilege. We will not lose our place in line. We've sacrificed greatly. And Paul could have kept his mouth shut and continued to be a celebrity in the community where he was born into, but that wasn't his calling and it's not ours either. So let me close with this. What's the calling of the mystery? If we understand the character of this mystery and the content of this mystery, what is it calling us to? Three things. Number one, proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Like if you believe this, wouldn't you proclaim it to other people? You get in simply by the free grace of God. God loves you. God has done everything necessary to accomplish your salvation for you. You believe it and receive it as the free gift that it is. And when I say proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, I understand this, this is a threat to arrogant, entitled people. It's a threat to greedy, self-righteous elder brothers. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? where the father's like, the son, the younger son gets a portion of my inheritance. And the older brother's like, dad, if you give it to him, he's a jerk, he's immoral, he's a terrible person. He's not following you. He's not respecting you. He's gonna go off and waste it. And then I lose out because that's coming out of what would have been my inheritance. And there's a lot of people like that religiously. Like, I don't wanna share with those people. And that comes out of mine. When in fact it doesn't. Because if you take away a million from infinity, do you know what you have left? You still have infinity. You know, you're not losing out on the inheritance simply because other people are joining in. So Paul is teaching us to think as debtors to grace, not professional elder brothers. And, and he had been both. Before Jesus called him, he was a professional elder brother, judgmental, entitled, self-righteous, condemning other people for the way they were coming to God correctly through Jesus. But then when he realized the mystery, when Jesus showed him the mystery, he forever became a debtor of grace. And he's like, I live, he says, it is, it is my life's mission to illuminate this mystery for anyone and everyone I possibly can, proclaiming, he calls them the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I think that's a bad translation because if you think unsearchable and you're like, oh, you Unsearchable sounds like you can't even search it. Um, the word literally means can't be tracked out. So the, the picture here is something more like this. Like you're on a helicopter tour in like Denali National Park and they drop you off. 
And you start walking around and you're like, my goodness, there's just beautiful, amazing things everywhere I look. And you're walking all day and you're getting cold. And you're like, it's still beautiful. And you're walking and walking and walking. And then someone shows you on a map, like, here's the park. And you walked all day, all week, all month. And here's, here's how much of that you've touched. There is still a lot to explore. That's the word here. Like, you, you just keep digging and finding all these nuggets of beauty. And not just, like, cognitive truths about God, but relationship with God. And he's like, and you will never track it all out. In other words, you will, you will barely scratch the surface in this life. I love it when people come and they're like, oh, Jesus, you're preaching on Ephesians. There's, there is nothing new in Ephesians that I've never heard. Like, really? There's nothing in Ephesians that you've never heard? There's a lot of stuff in Ephesians. That, I mean, you've heard it, but you can dig deeper in that one spot and find a whole world of treasure and then dig over here and dig over here. And again, because you're doing it in relationship with God, you know, I don't, I don't sit there with my wife and just say like, oh, so you're like going to dinner again? And she's going to tell me about her job and I'm going to get to know her more. And like, I already know her and I know what she does for a living. No, it's like you, you can't track it all out because you're doing a relationship with a real person. And this real person, Jesus, is infinite. And he's like, if you believed this picture of God's abundance toward you through Christ, you would be sharing it with other people. Which is important that I balance with this second calling. Yes, proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, but your B or kind of two here is, and be prepared to suffer loss for this mystery. And again, I said the book ends here, verse 1 and then verse 13 are talking about Paul's imprisonment for the sake of the Gentiles. He's like, because I opened my mouth to tell you what God has done for me, it cost me prosperity, prestige, comfort, and I embraced a life of difficulty instead. Imagine that. Imagine God comes to you and as clearly as he told Paul, hey, you are completely on the wrong track. You will never get where you think you're going the way you're going. You've got to turn around and solely believe in the free grace of Jesus. And, and you're like, okay. And so you walk away from that prestige and that prosperity and the comfort and the esteem and all those things simply because you want more people to know the hope of Jesus and all of a sudden, you're beat to a pulp, you're shipwrecked, you're lied about, you're imprisoned multiple times. And now you're sitting in prison writing to other people, trying to convince them they should believe in the thing that just landed you in jail. And if you're like me in my flesh, you'd probably be thinking more like, what in the world, God? Like, how is this better? So I left something that was a lie. It was a sham for the truth and the hope and the good news. And I gave myself like other people are not giving themselves. So like, couldn't you have lifted me up as a great example of how you intend to bless those who proclaim the gospel? And instead, here I am in a prison. You see why he's potentially discouraged. And you see why he would have to encourage them. Don't you lose heart over my situation it's crazy, but he's like, I'm fine. I'm good. How can he be fine? How can he be good? He lost everything. And the answer is, well, he didn't lose everything. He didn't lose anything that mattered to him. 
Because at the end of the day, he becomes this debtor to grace that I mentioned before. And he's like, oh, the only thing that matters to me is that I get the grace of God. And I get the grace of God. And so I'm here in a jail cell and I'm probably going to die. But I'm going to continue to tell other people that the comfort I have in Christ is greater. The freedom I have in Christ is greater. The hope I have in Christ is greater. And it's bomb-proof. Like, no one can take this stuff away by putting me behind a jail cell or putting guards outside my house and literally chaining me to a Roman centurion. See, on the whole, as you're reflecting on your life and the difficulties of life and your suffering loss, and maybe not even before Christ per se, but your suffering loss, on the whole, do you think, God, I have less than I deserve? Or on the whole, do you think, this is way more? than I deserve. And I think one of the real foundations of Paul's joy is he's like, now that I understand what the mystery is, I still have so much more in Christ than I ever could have imagined in my old rabbinic ways of trying to keep the Torah and knowing I wasn't, but lying to myself and everyone, trying to put myself up and prop up this sham life. And now in Jesus, I've been reconciled to God by his blood and no one can take that away. I'm good. And I'll confess, I I just don't really have that perspective some days still, but I want to, and I can because this mystery is so profound, it's so limitless. We can keep exploring it together and keep overturning new and beautiful truths and new and wonderful experiences with God. So proclaim this mystery, be prepared to suffer loss for this mystery. And then finally, what he says here, verse 12 is, the calling of this mystery is therefore come confidently to God. And if you're like, well, how does... How does that attach to to this mystery? I love it. Tim Keller says, who would dare wake up the king in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. to ask for a glass of water except for the king's child? You have that kind of access. Yeah, you, you wouldn't just waltz in and be like, king, wake up. I got something for you. I'm thirsty. You're the king. You provide for your people. You would never do that. But when you're the king's kid, you're just like, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Daddy, I feel sick. And you're on it. And what he's saying is this mystery is that Jesus has created that kind of nearness, that kind of access. Um, and, And the word access there is something like the right to speak. It's a really cool word. It's like Jesus has granted to you the right to speak. And you think of all these like movies you've seen or books you've read about that situation of like this person, like Esther in the Old Testament, like I'm going to appear before the king uninvited. I'm going to make a request on behalf of my people and I'll probably die. Why? Because I haven't been given the right to speak. And then sometimes the king would hold out the scepter a certain way and say, all right, you found favor. I grant you the right to speak. And sometimes they'd be like, cut off her head. And what he's saying is literally in the, in the Greek here is Jesus has granted you the access to the Father, the right to speak to the Father. That's why we say like we, we come to worship Jesus like through Christ, by the Spirit. And, and because this access is by free grace, man, I've needed that truth this week. 
just like frustration about some of the ways of God in my own personal life and just kind of like find myself questioning and then being like, oh man, I'm bad. I, like, I probably just lost access, except I didn't. And, and this is one of the beauties of the gospel is like if we were earning our way in, if we were earning our way to have the right to speak to the Father, then it's like you get there by your merits, but you get kicked out by your demerits. And you may not even know, the, how does the king see me today? More merits than demerits? Or where, where do I stand with the king? I don't know. And Esther in the Old Testament, you read this, she didn't know. She did not know, am I on his good side right now? Am I on his bad side? Did he have a bad morning? I don't know. And if we were that way with God, even those of you who are maybe proud and self-righteous and think, oh, I deserve access, I'm an awesome person doing awesome things, yeah, no. I mean, you would just never know, is my good enough good enough? But because our access is by free grace in the first place, it's not going to be taken away because we mess up. We still have the same access when we're messing up. And I want to just close this morning with kind of like a little bit of this extended metaphor where Paul's going to hone in on this language where he says, the eternal purpose of God is now realized in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. Jesus has done something through his life, his death, his resurrection, to throw open his arms and to throw open, as it were, the doors of heaven to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. And so what I want you to realize is like all throughout the course of human history, the creator God is writing this mystery story. One of your questions this week is to talk about why he did it that way. But he's writing this mystery story, and from the first chapters of Genesis, he's saying, okay, here's the story. Like, I'm going to rescue a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and I'm going to make them one new humanity. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you have these clues about the mystery. So going back to the third chapter of the Bible, you know, man and woman were created perfect, but they choose sin. They rebel against the creator. They fall under this curse. And right there in the middle of the curse, God says, you messed up. Satan's against you, but one day I'm going to send the seed of a woman, the seed of this woman, to be the snake crusher. And he goes on and he God sacrifices some kind of animal to clothe the nakedness of the sinners. They've rebelled, but he clothes them through the death of something innocent. And you just go right on through the story, and it's like then the covenant family is protected inside this big boat, this ark, and God himself closes the door and covers it, which is the Hebrew word for atones. He atones for his family and keeps them safe inside. And then we talked about Abraham, the father of this Jewish nation, where God is like, hey, I'm calling you to be a special people, but through you, I'm going to bring blessing to every people of the earth. And then the Hebrews are in bondage, and they're like, where are you, God? And then God shows up in the Exodus and delivers them on the night of Passover. And again, there's an innocent creature whose blood is shed and the death does not come to them because the innocent life has been given to protect them and deliver them and lead them back so they can be God's people living under God's rule in God's place. And then they get this law, and the law is given not to tell them how to live uh, or not, not to give them a way of salvation, but to tell them as the covenant people who have been redeemed by grace, here's how you live. 
And they get this tabernacle and they get this temple and the, the geography there says like come and be washed and have the innocent life sacrificed to cover your sins so that you can be right with God and approach God and be on good terms and peace with God. And then this little boy David stands on a battlefield and slings a stone at a giant and because he's the shepherd king and he wins, all the people of God get the victory and on and on it goes, like all throughout the Old Testament. And I encourage you, go back and read the Old Testament this way. It is not just like disjointed stories that make no sense except as moralistic lessons of like, be like David, except for those times where you shouldn't be like David because sometimes David was bad. And it's just left to us to figure out when he was good and when he was bad and what do we do. And it's like, it's one unfolding of a mystery. And there's clue after clue, picture after picture, hint after hint, shadow after shadow. And what is it all pointing to? It was pointing to the time in history where Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh, became one of us without ceasing to be God, lived the life we should have lived, died a sacrificial death on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended on high, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The whole story is pointing to Jesus. Jesus understand he's not plan B. It's not like God made everything and it's like, oh, rats. They messed it up. What am I going to do now? Well, let's confirm with the angels. Let's, let's, let's talk. What should we do? Well, guess you could go down there. No. He says this was the eternal purpose of God. God always knew if I give humankind a free will, they're going to use their free will not to honor me but to rebel against me. And then we've got a mess on our hands. So I will go and redeem the very people who rebelled but it's not just going to be through some third party doing something over here. It's going to be through my own blood, my own body. And uh, how many of you were, well, maybe you don't even know. Like a decade or so ago, they were restoring the Capitol Dome over here. And so they built this scaffolding all around the dome. And it was like wrapped in white tarps so the debris wouldn't fall on people below. or what, That's why I assume it was there. Um, I, I kind of picture the Old Testament like this. It's scaffolding. And there's this scaffolding that's set up, and you see the scaffolding growing, and you see these tarps, and you're kind of like, okay, I'm starting to see like the shape of this thing and the mass of this thing, but I don't see this thing. And, and, and God is like behind those tarps and on that scaffolding, He's like creating and creating and creating and working, working and writing, 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 writing. And then the scaffolding comes down, and what's left is. Jesus and the gospel of like all these pictures, all this work, it all pointed to one thing. And I want to close with this, that where, where Paul says, what else is this story accomplishing besides redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation? It says, it is declaring the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly authorities. And that picture is, I, I just see God, like, for all this time, the Old Testament is like this tapestry, and there are these colors, and he's bringing these threads and these textures together, and he's weaving a story. And the longer he goes, it's like starting to make a little bit of sense. It's starting to look like something to some people, but other people are kind of looking at the back of it. And if you've ever seen the back of a tapestry, it's no bueno. It's like just, it's just chaos and color and confusion. And, and then suddenly he gets done, and he's like, Here's my tapestry. And it's Jesus, the Son of God, coming and dying for his people to give them eternal life by free grace and making one new humanity 
And the picture here, the, the manifold wisdom of God, manifold is like many colored. That's why I use the illustration of like a tapestry. It's like many colors, many textures. It's like the facets of a diamond. And he brings this all together and it says the heavenly authorities are looking into this. And I picture this, like the angels are like, how's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? These people are sinning. Oh, another generation of rebels. Oh, how is he going to do this? And then Jesus comes and they're like, whoa, that's how he's going to do this? And the devils are like, he's not going to be able to do it. He's not going to be able to do it. He's not going to be able to do it. This does not accomplish that. Sorry, it may point to something, but this does Oh, we are undone by what Jesus did. So whether angels or devils, they're looking at this manifold wisdom of God. And I know it's really fun and really, really cool right now to dunk on the church. I will not dunk on the church because God loves the church. And God is saying the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in this community. Is it messy? Absolutely. Are there sinners and hypocrites? Of course, because we're human and we're broken and we're not home yet. But it's through us and through God bringing us together through this one sacrifice of himself that he's declaring to angels and demons, this is my wisdom, this is my power, you can't stop me. And that's a mystery worth sacrificing for, that's a mystery worth suffering for, that's a mystery worth sharing with our neighbors and believing I have bold and confident access to come to a God who loves me this much. Run to your father because you delight to spend time with a God who does this kind of stuff for you.